This is Mission.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Marketing Trends and the Leeds Art Week. Hello, and welcome to Marketing Trends. This is producer Ben Wilson. Today's episode features an interview with Camille Ricketts. Camille is the head of marketing at Notion, an all-in-one workspace for notes, tasks, wikis, and databases. Camille also previously served as the head of content and marketing at First Round Capital, content manager at Kiva, and communications manager at Tesla Motors. On this episode, Camille talks all about how to create great content. She discusses how to identify content that will resonate with your target market, how to build an audience, and how to capitalize on a great content marketing strategy. As usual, here are a few highlights. Content, particularly when it comes from a company, only really succeeds if it is really high utility. Like I just helped you do something you wanted to do today or uh, emotional in a way that makes you feel less alone on the planet. People thought that they could get the full story of how to do something because every single first round piece, and we actually codified this in a manifesto that lives on the site, every single review piece had to deliver tactical advice that could be used by a reader immediately. I think that for the bulk of content that's produced by companies, it's uh, extremely important that you are offering some sort of utility or some sort of next action, a next step. And I'm not saying that that next action needs to be clicking on a button saying bye, but uh, the next action should be looking forward to the next newsletter or the next action should be something that's that's actually important to the person who is in the audience. Thanks once again to Camille for coming on the show. So without further ado, here is our interview with Camille Ricketts, head of marketing at Notion. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot, B2B marketing automation on the world's number one CRM. Are you ready to take your B2B marketing to new heights? With Pardot, marketers can find and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI. Learn more by visiting pardot.com podcast, or click on the link in our show notes. Here is your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org. And across from me in studio, Camille, what's going on? You know, just came down here to beautiful Palo Alto. It's sunny and warm. It's really nice. I know. It turns from winter to summer here in about an instant. Uh, They say we don't have seasons, but uh, we have two. Um, (laughs) So super excited to have you on. You are a, I, I, I don't throw this out lightly, you are a content marketing guru, and not just that, a content guru. You've done stints at a bunch of companies that our listeners may know of, including, but not limited to, Wall Street Journal, VentureBeat, Tesla, Kiva, the White House. We'll talk about that, and First Round Capital, and now Notion. So we'll get into, uh, we'll pick our way through some of the bio stuff, but also we just want to talk about you know, content marketing, corporate storytelling, um, and how this is applicable to marketers everywhere. But first, how'd you get into uh, into marketing in the first place? Yeah, it was actually pretty accidental. I started my career really determined and certain that I was going to be a journalist. Came right out of school, went right to the Wall Street Journal, had an internship in London, right out of the gate, transferred to New York. And then I got to a point where I thought to myself, maybe this isn't for me, which is a really difficult point in anyone's young career to have everything built to to sort of this moment and then decide that it was going to go in a different direction. Um, so after that, 
I came back to California, worked at VentureBeat for a while, was writing about green technology, was still thinking about how I was going to sort of branch off into something else, how I was going to parlay my writing skill from journalism into a different type of career. And that's when uh, the VP of Communications and Marketing, Ricardo Reyes, uh, asked me if I would be interested in applying for a job on the PR team at Tesla Motors. And that was sort of my first foray outside of journalism. And uh, I found myself in sort of a marketing role that was traditional PR with a bend toward content. Well, and I think what's cool about going to a, a small little company um, like Tesla is never in the news, nothing that <laughs> exciting going on. You know, you're just sitting there and, and nothing's going on. I had to imagine that, you know, this is 2010 to 2012 timeline, right? Had to imagine it was a pretty wild time. It was a very interesting time at the company. Certainly, I don't know if I would recommend people who are like, I'm looking for a first PR job to dive into the deep end quite to that extent. Yeah, totally. Uh, this was pre-Model S. We were still working with the Roadster. So my job was primarily to take the Roadster everywhere and to show it off to as many journalists as I possibly could. Like take it, do you mean drive it or do you mean? <laughs> Literally within my first three months of working at the company, they were like, okay, you're going to take this car $109,000 car and you're going to drive it from Washington, D.C. to Boston and you're going to stop all along the way no and talk kidding. to small town reporters. And uh, that was that was the deep end of deep ends. <laughs> that is wild. Did you feel like were you kind of like cozying up like, hey, I know I know the job a little bit. I've sat in your shoes. Boy, do I have a story for you. I think that that's honestly why I appealed to the team there during the interview is that they thought, oh, this is somebody who really understands the mentality of a journalist and how to talk to them in a way um, that is going to make them, you know, feel like they are understood and what their needs are understood in a way that wouldn't come across as traditional PR. Here's a little story. I don't know if you probably don't know this, actually, because we did not talk about it in the pre-interview. The first ad that I ever sold was to Tesla and it was a print wow. ad. Wow, print ad. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so- Where uh, did it appear? in a magazine called GI Jobs Magazine. And we were promoting Tesla's veteran program and that was being built at the time, which is really cool. And uh, yeah, not a lot of people uh, selling print ads to a Tesla or to a company that does not do advertising. Yeah, I would say that that probably wasn't top of our list, but I remember that campaign. I was actually part of what we were doing with yeah. veterans at the time. Yeah, it was really inspiring. Well, and I think that, you know, this is, it's a good microcosm for when you're in a marketing job and you have a CEO who's, who is like, you know, hey, we we have a certain way of doing things. We don't want to do things in this way and you need to work within those parameters. One of the things that, that the team that was leading the veteran efforts was if we need to get, we need to get this message out in a way that makes sense to people. How do we do that? We need to profile veterans that are at the company. How do we do that? And it kind of snowballed into this, mm -hmm. um, to this thing where it ended up being this like, you know, really cool ad and this whole, you know, story about the veterans that are working at Tesla, um, in kind of various different levels. And it always struck me as it was one of the first, you know, huge learning experiences that I had towards how important the story is to the people, to the executives on the team to share stories of their employees, mm -hmm. because that is worth paying for, yeah. right? Like not paying for a, a picture of a car. Like that Absolutely. was that was not part of it. So anyhow. 
I think that there's something related to that, something I'm thinking about now in my job at Notion is that when you are on a marketing team or you're a marketing leader, you're actually selling several brands. You're not just selling the brand to customers, but you also have a talent brand that you're appealing to people who you might want to try to recruit. You have an investing brand um, that you're trying to project to prospective investors. Um, you really own one story that gets filtered through many different lenses. And that's something that I think Tesla did remarkably well was make people who worked there feel a certain way, make people who wanted to work there feel a certain way, not just customers who might buy the cars. Yeah. And it's something that we could do an entire uh, episode on probably is the idea of aligning product marketing and talent acquisition marketing because talent acquisition, smallest budget within the company, you know, diversity initiative, smallest budget within the talent acquisition. Yeah. So, you know, that was one of the things that we were working on early on is like, you know, hey, if you're promoting, you know, a company that did a great job of this was um, Bank of America in their, the stadium in Charlotte. I'm pretty sure I'm getting this right. Their football stadium for the uh, Panthers, all of the ads within the stadium, all the Bank of America ads are basically like customer success stories about veterans. Oh, that's really impressive. And it's like, and and they had a really big veteran program. And this was like part of the marketing that they used. It was like, hey, we're going to use these stories of like employees and customers and all this stuff to bring awareness to our veteran program, but also like to showcase our product. Yeah. And also to say these are our values as well, Yeah, which is, I think, alluring on an entirely different level for many audiences. So flash forward to your job at First Round Capital, and we can we can weave back into the other stuff. <laughs> Sounds um, good. But uh, flash forward to, or I don't know, what do you? Which way do you want to go? First round, I would say, is definitely like the most significant yeah, let's go. phase so. of my career, and I think it's where I really came into my own as a content thinker in a lot of ways. I'm not going to necessarily say that I'm a content guru, though I really appreciate that title you gave me. But it was certainly where I gave the most thought to how to tell stories from a company perspective, um, but in a way that wasn't going to feel corporate. Yeah, no, and so yeah, let's let's go into the con- the first round stuff because I think that it's really relevant for our listeners. So first round for those folks who don't know is a venture capital firm. And we got multiple different folks that reached out to us that said we should have Camille on the podcast based off of the content library that you build at first round, which is not something that really any other VC had ever firm had ever done at that time, right? Yeah, I'd say that we were really lucky on timing. We were one of the first to branch into this direction. So, you know, for our, for our listeners, it's basically an organization with tons of intellectual capital, like tons of smart people and tons of portfolio companies that are bringing, you know, best in class products and services in and around this like innovation hub. And there's no content coming out of this. So enter Camille. So I would say that most VCs prior to what we ended up doing were producing content, but it was usually in the mold of a partner at the firm writing as an individual about market trends, about stuff that they were seeing that was interesting, about their experiences and what they had learned. Um, And that has value. And I think that there's still some firms and partners at firms that do a really great job of that. Like I Mary think, Meeker. Oh, my gosh. She's like, incredible. I admire her so much for that. Um, I think that the folks at Andreessen do a beautiful yep. job. We wanted to do something that was going to be pretty starkly differentiated from that just to like shake things up and get more eyeballs. And so what we did is we interviewed a bunch of founders about what they felt were still missing and what it was that 
they wanted more than anything else to help them on this journey. And so many of them kept saying, I want to have coffee with Jeff Weiner from LinkedIn. I want to have coffee with Stuart Butterfield. I want to have coffee with you know, Carol Bartz, these types of people. But they don't have coffee with up-and-coming founders. They just don't have the time, unfortunately. Uh, so we really thought, how can we create content that's going to be told from the operator's perspective rather than the investor's perspective that would take sort of the kernel of that type of coffee advice conversation and scale it to a much larger audience? What was the, like, why? Like, what was the larger why of, like, why does any of this even matter for for first round? Uh, definitely mindshare is a thing that a lot of VC firms need to be paying attention to. It used to be that, you know, money was money and money was good. (laughs) And uh, I've heard this great analogy that now there's so many people out there that are providing this type of funding and it's become so undifferentiated that it's kind of like walking down a grocery store aisle with a bunch of unmarked cereal boxes. And you're not really sure what you're getting uh, when you decide to work with a particular VC partner. So we really wanted to be the colorful cereal box on the aisle with nutrition facts clearly displayed about what you could expect from working with us. And we found that content was going to be the most scalable way to do that and the most scalable way that we could send these messages about what First Round valued, which is uh, supporting operators, not just uh, the founders at these companies, but the people who are building them alongside the founders, that we valued collective wisdom and that we were in the business of extracting this in really smart ways to make available, not just for our portfolio companies, but for the ecosystem at large. So we wanted to project the fact that we had a concentration of knowledge and we were going to be magnanimous about it. And I think that our content program helped send those messages. Which is also just a very Silicon Valley mindset. Like there's a lot of folks that I think in the past in business have kind of held that stuff internal and not shared stuff outside of the building. And I think that this idea of collaboration and, you know, this healthy competition and collaboration that happens here in Silicon Valley and ultimately like we, you know, we would say is probably one of the best parts of it here is something that is really exciting, like and you something you want to share. Did you feel that level of excitement as you started building the library? I definitely did. It quickly became apparent just how many stories there were going to be to tell. When I first took the job, I remember my parents asking like, well, how many posts could you possibly write about starting startup companies and how many people could possibly be interested in reading those stories? But it instantly became clear to me as I was talking about, you know, how to hire a good engineering leader, how to scale sales operations, all of this, just the number of nuanced problems and challenges that the people building these companies come across every day and have no resources to answer. They're needing to reason themselves or they're needing to be connected with other people who might help them but might not have the right answer. You Google search and you get a bunch of contradictory noise when you're searching for answers to this stuff. So it was really exciting to me to not only be able to focus on cool problems, but also give really credible advice from people who deserve to be heard. Yeah, the key thing there is credible because I think, I mean, it was all key. That's all brilliant. But uh, <laughs> but the key thing is there is credible because I think that there's kind of this notion with content that because there's more content created than ever before, like, you know, every day that's, you know, more content created than, you know, whatever, that a hundred years ago was created yeah. an entire year. You know, we've, we've kind of all heard that stuff. And the idea is like, do we need more? And the answer is absolutely unequivocally yes. It's like, it would be like saying in like, you know, 
1900. Do we need more books? Like right. the ones that we have are pretty good. It's like we need tons more. And I think that one of the things, you know, obviously that we believe here at Mission because, you know, we have a network of podcasts, but is this idea that the practitioners of right now, of the cutting edge, are working on things that are not going to be cataloged or put into a book for at a minimum a year. Right. So if you can bring and a lot of times people that are will write the book about this, you know, thing in their life, this particular event years from now. Like we just had um, uh, Frederick Kress, the, the CEO of Okta on who, oh, just, yeah. who just launched an awesome podcast. But it's funny. He's sharing all these different lessons of building Okta. And like he's sharing this at year 10. Right. Right. But there's some of those insights that were happening at year one and year two and year three. So if you can bring those insights to people, it's extremely valuable. Did you feel like... Uh, oh, so I was going to say absolutely that the one thing that we kept hearing from our audience again and again is that it's so refreshing to hear from people who are, are in it still. Yes. Who are you know actively building or actively leading teams, trying to like figure out all the same problems as them. Yeah. So did you find it difficult to kind of sort through the noise? In terms of finding great people to talk to, uh, I was really lucky and thrilled to get a lot of signal just from introductions of people. Initially, it was the partners at First Round who are all really remarkable humans and have equally remarkable networks, and they helped surface a lot of people that set the standard for the type of person who we featured. And then as we gained some more momentum, we were having a lot of inbound choice, but we were always able to sort of figure out who was doing something non-obvious or who was taking a methodology just a step further. And that's who we ended up gravitating toward. How did it kind of start from like, what sections did you start with? How big was the team? How did it grow over time? So at the very beginning, this was at the very ground floor of VC firms, not just doing content, but doing any sort of platform portfolio value add support at all. Totally. And so I joined a a team on the operations side of first round that was really just me, an events person, a talent person, uh, and then sort of our intrepid leader, this guy, Brett Burson, who's a partner at first round now, who helped give us direction of what it would mean to be this support squad for all of these companies. And then over time, that team grew. And I think now it's at least 12 people. Oh, wow. Uh, who are doing various things like running this hugely robust mentorship program. At the end of my time there, our events team was throwing, you know, 60 plus small dinners a year, plus two major summits at least. Um, So there was a lot that was going on. So it ended up growing hugely in terms of content. I was there for about a year and a half on my own doing all the writing and editing. And then I was really, really fortunate to find a colleague named Sean Young who came on and joined me. But really, for the most part, it was the two of us. We worked with a pretty great freelancer in Nashville, Tennessee, who helped us get stories pretty far down the line. And uh, when you say all the writing, like 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 what was the level of volume to quality to like what what was it looking like? Yeah. So we set a pretty remarkable pace right out of the gate. Uh, When I first joined, I think that there wasn't a sense of how long these things were going to take to produce or how long they were going to be or the multiple phases we needed to go through to even get a really high quality piece, which I can talk about because it really was kind of counterintuitive. How do you get to an excellent interview with somebody? But we started with doing two pieces a week, Tuesdays and Thursdays. 
And for the most part, that's a cadence that we held up through the four to five years that I was there. And uh, most of those stories were between 3,000 and 5,000 words. How did you come up with that length? And why did you think that that was like the right piece for what you wanted to do? Yeah, I think a lot of people thought that we were a little nutty to lean into long form the way that we did, given that the entire community was saying like more snackable. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, more skimmable. Like that's the, the future. Wherever. Yeah, exactly. But it turned out that that actually became a key point of differentiation for us, that people thought that they could get the full story of how to do something. Because every single first round piece, and we actually codified this in a manifesto that lives on the site, every single review piece had to deliver tactical advice that could be used by a reader immediately. Yep. And so... I think people wanted more of a manual sort of style read from the review, given that was the objective. And so the longer pieces allowed people to have a really comprehensive understanding of not just what to do, but why to do it. And then also um, a sense of like how this actually worked for the people who were talking about it. Everyone said that they were like pocketing them to keep as a reference point for yeah, later. And yeah, they yeah. would like go back when they were hiring a data scientist or whatever. And then share the article with them or whatever. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it ended up being an advantage, a feature, not a bug. <laughs> yeah, we, um, I've told this story before on the podcast, but we ran an article as an experiment that was uh, 63 minutes long, a 63 minute long read on, on Medium. We had, it was like, I think nine people that read it all the way through. <laughs> and um yeah, it was one of those things where you're like, what a learning experience, right? Nine people read in the age of long form is dead, read an hour. This is a novella, right? Yeah. Um, and those sort of things, like you just have to, you have to test those things because again, if those nine people, for example, are nine CEOs of Fortune 50 companies, that piece of content becomes potentially a multi-million dollar piece of content, right? Absolutely. So I, I think that people just a lot of times believe in the status quo of like what everybody is doing, not really looking at the end result of the content, right? And like who they want to, to read it. I think a lot of people took cues from the publishers with how they were doing their content not realizing that the publisher's business model is based off of page views and ads served. Right. Your business model is based off of like people taking action or leads or engagement, or awareness. Yeah, whatever that thing is. And so they just kind of said, yeah, articles should be between 500 and 700 words. Yeah. And then I think everybody's like, oh, well, those people have run X number of articles and they must be running all kinds of research on these things. So that must be what's working. And I think that we're leaving behind a huge audience of people that really love a comprehensive, really holistic look at a topic. And I love the idea of the kind of guide approach because you see the best marketers, especially in B2B, use this approach in their content marketing now. We've talked to a bunch of different you know, CMOs and leaders that do that your exact same style approach that you did a first round for their companies, for their for their content. What did this look like kind of after the snowball was rolling, you know, after you've been doing this for a number of years and you kind of take a step back and you're like, we just built a ton of stuff. Like with the, this is, this is a lot. Like what we've built is something that probably you never imagined that it was going to be this much stuff. Or maybe you did. I don't know. I don't think I had any idea. Yeah. Uh, me and Sean sort of took a step back maybe like a year and a half ago 
and realized that we could probably recycle a lot of the content that we had been making and it would be new and fresh for people again. And it was still really accurate and still really compelling. And so we started repackaging it into these sorts of like six must reads about a certain topic, like time management or hiring a first manager, what have you. And just remarketing the content in really interesting ways gave us this perspective of just how much we had created. I mean, and that's the thing that's so exciting about about content is that you can cross cut the content for different use cases. And this is like something that we've seen with with podcasting that's like so exciting going forward is people listen just like they read, just like they watch stuff for different reasons. And you can pull the use cases out of the content in different ways. Like 10 things that CIOs said could be interesting for CIOs in one way, but it's interesting for people who are selling to CIOs mm-hmm. in a different way. Yeah. Or, it's, or it's interesting to CMOs that are looking to partner with their CIOs on technology. Those three, uh, or excuse me, those 10 pieces of content are valuable for three different groups in different packaging. Like that's what's so exciting about this stuff. And I think we look at it so like binary when it's actually extremely complex and and deep. What were some of those learnings with the depth of content that you were creating that people were recycling years later? Because when you're at the cutting edge, guess what? That person's company goes from 400 employees to 4,000 or it goes from 400 employees to no longer a company. What were some of those things that as time progressed, you were able to look back and see like, oh, this is actually totally different now. Yeah, one of the big ones and a story that keeps coming up again and again is an interview with Joe Gebbia that happened at the very beginning. He's a a co-founder of Airbnb. Oh. And um, he uh, talked about in this review story how at the very beginning you have to do things that just are not going to scale inherently. And the example that he gave was that people were not engaging with Airbnb listings because the photos were ugly. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And so they sent professional photo crews to people's homes to go take really beautiful, spacious, lovely photos of their spaces. And that turned everything around. But of course, Airbnb was never going to send film crews to every single listing. Uh, But the point that he was making there, and now that you see that Airbnb is this like incredible empire and one of the only brands that I think actually has emotional resonance for me. Like he he really set a good foundation there with that type of thinking. So like that's something that I think people refer to again and again. And we've seen that story like pop up on Twitter and get like a huge following oh, I mean, again. Yeah. I mean, like Reed, Hoffman years did, later. Reed Hoffman did an entire episode of Masters of Scale on that one topic. Yeah. I mean, that's like with Brian Chesky. Like it's so wise. But yeah, that sort of stuff, those like I mean, we look at a lot of the stuff with our content of things that have been wildly successful for like 10 years, 50 years, 100 years, like those sort of ideas that you can bring back and and relook at, you know, why were people saying this? Like there's a reason why if a saying, if it's been around for a thousand years, like why that saying has been around because there's inherent wisdom in in the length of that stuff. Here's a really funny, this is maybe a funny story and maybe we'll cut it out, but who knows? Um, (laughs) My CEO, who is just delighted by different cultural experiences, this is my CEO, Ivan Zhao at Notion, who I think is a brilliant thinker. Uh, He went to a Passover uh, this last weekend. I literally, so did I. That's why I was just thinking this. Keep going. Oh, and he was like, that is amazing that that ceremony has stayed totally preserved for that length of time. He was like, that is brand resonance. I I <laughs> literally like, oh, said man. the same thing this weekend at Passover. Uh, I was like, man, the song Dayenu has been around for 2000 years. It was written in 25 like 
AD or whatever, and this or BC is an elaborate or whatever ceremony. It is. This yeah. is not like a broad stroke sort of deal. <laughs> no, I we joke all the time about, you know, people bagging on listicles and you're like, well, there's a listicle called the Ten Commandments that's been around for 2000 years. So there's a there's power in lists. Yes. Like, there's a reason why human beings remember these sort of things like song is another thing. Like there's a reason why songs are so easy to remember. Yeah. You know, songs, stories, you know, listicles, like there's a reason why you should use all of these different things in your current content strategy because they work. We did an episode about your favorite jingles, like your favorite ad jingles. Oh yeah. And like, where is that going to go now that radio is dying? Where's that going to go as, as TV commercials like decrease in their scope? Like the fact that, you know, if you pulled hundred people, 90 could sing the Cars for Kids ad is wild. Yeah. And that it comes up just sort of like, oh, man, I know that. And then people know all the words. Yeah. And they've been like living in their brains. And and marketers just won't have those advantages anymore. I mean, you just absolutely will not have the type of scale. There's I no mean, more mass media experiences. I was just talking to somebody about this because Game of Thrones is clearly the yeah. closest that a lot of people, I think, our generation are getting to a mass media experience yeah. where you can have a conversation with a stranger on a train about it. But I mean, there's really very few of those anymore. And even Game of Thrones has what um, probably less than 10 million viewers. Oh, yeah. Every episode. So, yeah, it's a great point. And all the people who don't listen to it don't subscribe to the content. So that's what's so funny is like if you don't watch the show, you don't care about all the Twitter stuff. You may stuff. have never heard you, about it. You don't care. Yeah, you, you don't care. We were talking about this exact thing, Game of Thrones in, in the office the other day and about um, comparing that with uh, Bob Ross. Joy of Painting was syndicated in 80 million households. Oh, my goodness. A week. So you're talking about Bob Ross was in eight times more households than Game of Thrones was. Right. Um, like there were shows that were syndicated. And I forget the name of the columnist. I think it was Ryan Holiday was writing about this in a, in a blog post about there was a columnist that was syndicated in. Uh, He's basically read by 25 percent of the American public, including the president. I think it was Nixon. I can't remember which that read this guy's article every day. Think of the influence that that has. Yeah. And I don't think given the fragmentation that we're working with now that anything has that type of megaphone sort of quality to it. And and yet you have things that are these cultural phenomenons. And as marketers, you need to find those. We taught, we did the episode with uh, Peter Schwartz. This is like a greatest hits. I don't know why I'm referencing so many things. <laughs> I love but, it. No, but we did an episode with Peter Schwartz who was talking about like Minority Report and building Minority Report with Spielberg and the things that they were thinking about and product placement and, you know, the what Lexus did to be part of that film. And then you see, you know, two decades later, Lexus double down with Black Panther, which like Black Panther is probably going to get seen by 10 billion people. Yep. Like, really oh, good choice. You know, so you're like pretty valuable that your company is positioned in front of like the film that broke every single box office record. And, you know, over the next however many years, it's going to be seen by billions and billions and more people. Cultural significance, I think, that is like of a massive scale. And like, yeah. So let's let's get into like that idea of this like audacious content. I mean, what what you did at first round was extremely audacious. No one had done it before. It felt like it was the right thing to do. What are things that you're thinking about at Notion potentially or just this idea of corporate storytelling that you're excited about or you're seeing that people work on that are the next evolution of content marketing? 
Yeah, that's a great question. There's two things that I am thinking about at Notion that's sort of drawing from my experience at first round. The first is my suspicion that enterprise marketers are going to have to behave and follow the leads of consumer marketers more than ever before, because at the end of the day, the buyer of enterprise products, whether it's SaaS software or something else, are human beings that are moved by the same things. And I'll talk a little bit more about that maybe later. The other thing is that this is advice that came up for me when I was helping different portfolio companies at first round, but the most successful content programs I saw We're not necessarily pushing the idea of a brand or a product, but instead figuring out what problems their audience had. And even if that wasn't the problem the product was solving, they created content that solved the problem. Totally. Like whether it was valuable advice in some sense or like access to a type of person and their thinking, they really were like, how can we pivot content in that direction? And the halo effect from that is what is going to help our actual product and brand. Yeah, we've um, we talked to someone on the show about tools and this rise of like how brilliant marketers will use tools. Yeah. And I always use the click CPM calculator as a great example. Like I've used that cal- that CPM calculator so many times. <laughs> yeah. And like it's just, and it's one of those things, like I know their brand. I know I've been to their website a ton of times and it's to go back and use that tool over and over and over again. Once you get a tool that works, you're going to go back to it, right? You absolutely stick with it. So one thing at Notion that we're really excited about is just seeing all of this organic, like cult serious behavior around our product from students because it's the ideal product for like taking notes, doing a lot of research, making sure they live side by side, managing all of your classes, all of that. So what can we do to fan the flames of that existing passion, make sure that students who don't know about it will find out about it? And then once they love it and they've worked it into the core workflows of their lives, maybe they bring that into the workplace with them. We don't know. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's a brilliant insight. Like we think about this with podcasting all the time. It's like if the vast majority of young people are getting into podcasts like young people inherently become executives at some point in time yes and so if you want to influence you know the next generation of executives this is the medium that you should be choosing you know similar you know to your point if you want to get in the hands of people you know early on in the funnel it's like who better start with college students yeah absolutely do you find that some of the problems that they have are something that maybe is tough to resonate with a team of people that are probably a few years removed from college? Uh, In terms of how do we send a message to people who are out of school about this particular brand or? No, I mean, I mean, for college students. Yeah. I mean, because. Like, who are they? (laughs) What do they like? What are they thinking about? Yeah. I mean, I'm definitely removed from that age group. Um, (laughs) I'm right now speaking to you as a 34 year old. And uh, literally in the job description for this role that I have at Notion, they said in a bullet point, must be hip. And I, <laughs> I'm really taking a chance there with that. But I, I do find in talking to groups of students, like we just had a group of Berkeley students in the other day, that uh, no matter who you are, you are feeling this impending sense of doom around how do I take in all this information in my life and then make meaning out of it. And that's just something that I think all of us are experiencing no matter where we are, what age we are. And people are always looking for better ways to do it and better ways to architect their lives. And, you know, this is what this whole podcast series is about, is uh, self-improvement in many different ways. Uh, So if we can tap into that sort of wellspring of energy, 
I think that it doesn't matter necessarily what age you are. What about the corporate storytelling part excites you? Like what about the the way that marketers can structure their stories to make a company which might not feel re- relevant to a group of people that allows them to buy in and and ultimately like just care about what this company's working on? I think that corporate storytelling when it's done well gets to the fundamental humanity and the emotional experience of the company itself, the people who work there, the people who use the product in a way that companies have never really valued before, (laughs) have never prioritized when it comes to their marketing or customer acquisition. But for the first time, they're starting to think, oh, I have to motivate somebody and I can't do it with just a display ad. I can't do it with, you know, all of my regular traditional tools that have been working for the last, I think, 10, 15 years. I have to take an approach where I am going to be a helpful teacher for people. I'm going to have to value their education. I can't sell them the same way that I used to be able to. And so I have to speak to them as a human to a human. And I either, and this is a theory that I have shared before, that content, particularly when it comes from a company, only really succeeds if it is really high utility like I just helped you do something you wanted to do today or uh, emotional in a way that makes you feel less alone on the planet. Yeah. Um, And that's the type of stuff. That second one is the type of stuff where somebody turns to their best friend and says, you have to hear this or we have to go to that event together next time. Um, But anywhere outside of that zone, I think that you get content that just doesn't quite do the job you want it to do. What are some of the common mistakes or pitfalls that you saw startups making when it came to trying to do content marketing, you know, you see, you saw hundreds of startups in your, in your time of first round. Why do you think content marketing, you know, implementation fails? I think that a lot of people uh, do this exact thing, uh, which is we're going to do content and we're going to tell human stories. But the human story that they tell is the following, which is um, so-and-so, let's call him Henry, has this problem. And they describe Henry's problem and they say, luckily, he found us, Product X. And then they describe how Product X solved Henry's problem. And that's the content that they then mass manufacture in the form of blog posts, probably written by one content manager that they've employed to do exactly that. And very few people discover that content. Very few people actually consume it in a meaningful way. I'd say that it probably doesn't lead to very many conversions or as many as people would like. So I think that breaking out of that sort of rote formula, and even if you have to do case studies, what is it that you are offering your audience outside of just that very basic narrative arc? So one thing that I talked to somebody about today is maybe what your product does is about a larger concept like information architecture, or it's about starting small business. So how can you have your content actually provide white label generic advice, not generic, but you know, non-specific to your product advice about how to do something that your audience wants to do. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. I mean, we talked with one of the guys on the Harmon Brothers about this idea of like in the hero's journey, your product is not the hero. The hero is the customer. The elixir or whatever it is, uh, is your product or it's the wizard or the magical being or whatever it is, however you want to position your product. Yeah, the sword and the stone. Yeah, but you're not selling them that. You're selling them like at the end of it, they become the wizard, right? Right. Like that's that's the end result that you want to get to. But but even still, that's still like you're adding a couple steps, but it's still the same thing. I always think about it as 
we get obsessed about a lot of vanity metrics for sure. And they aren't all like shares, for example. I think shares is both the most underrated and overrated thing. But I think about content in the way of like, would you actually talk about this with one of your friends? Like, would you go and share this? Like, and friend meaning a work colleague or your spouse or whoever it is, the relevant person that you want them to also talk to about buying your stuff. Yeah. Um, Would you actually talk to them about this story? Totally. If the answer is no, it's like it probably wasn't that good and it wasn't that impactful and you didn't do the sort of thing that inspires them to go to their CFO and go, hey, I heard this story about this other CFOs just like you. You should probably check this out, right? It just didn't invoke the thing. And I think the best content marketing campaigns deliver a level of high quality content that the CTAs are those stories. Yeah. Like the CTAs of the content, but you could come back every single day and never go and like read that customer story and you'd be happy with what it was. Do you find like taking action from content is something that is like overrated, underrated, or just about right? I think that for the bulk of content that's produced by companies, it's uh, extremely important that you are offering some sort of utility or some sort of next action, a next step. And I'm not saying that that next action needs to be clicking on a button saying bye, but uh, the next action should be looking forward to the next newsletter or the next action should be something that's a- that's actually important to the person who is in the audience. So, yeah. for example, let's say if at Notion we are creating content that's not necessarily like use Notion for this, but here's how to externalize the stuff that is bouncing around in your brain. Here's how to take in an enormous amount of information and make it more memorable for yourself or something like that. And then, you know, the Notion logo is somewhere in that proximity. I think that that's much more valuable than pushing somebody to click buy because it gives them a greater sense of who you are. It brings them back again and again for deeper levels of engagement, that type of thing. I thought you meant click buys and like buys and like buy Felicia buy. Oh. Like, and I was like, <laughs> buy B-U-Y. <laughs> but B-Y-E is the, is the little X at the top of the screen. What other stuff are you working on in Notion that you're excited about? Interestingly, when you are the first marketer at a company that's really only about 15 people right now, uh, you find yourself doing all kinds of things. And one of those things for me is writing a lot of help center content. But what's interesting about that is that there are so many opportunities with help center content to capitalize on SEO, to tell a story, to give examples of how your product can be used that then could be shareable. You don't have to just provide really rote step-by-step, here's a pixel-perfect screenshot sort of stuff. You can give people the tools and the information they need to solve their problems. Do you think the world, uh, like, what do you think about this world of organization and collaboration and this stuff. I mean, I I find that we can work so much faster than we used to work, but it also is so much more as it is expected, right? With great great uh, power comes great responsibilities. Like I feel like I can use I can work faster than ever, but the things that I want to keep track of somehow like find a way to not get found. Right. Like what does Notion look like, you know, over the next five years? What are the things that are really exciting to figure out a way to make people more productive, more organized, um, and do better work? 
Thank you for asking that. I'm going to attempt to answer, although I'm sure Ivan is going to be listening to that <laughs> and listening very closely to the words that I use. But... Ivan, Ivan and I can talk about uh, can talk about Passover rituals. Uh, that's that'll right. be a separate podcast. Unbelievable. So that's hilarious. I was thinking the same thing. Yeah, it's it's very impressive. I'd say that there's two things that we really want to accomplish over the next three or so years. Uh, the first is really just core to our mission, which is that we want to give people the ability to modify and build the tools they themselves want in order to do their work. Mm-hmm. And can we make sure that the people who know how to code are not the only people who are able to modify and build the tools that they need to work? Everybody's brain works differently. Everybody should be able to have workflows that match their brains, not the other way around. What I love about Notion and what we're hoping to help other people fall in love with about Notion is that we give you a very clean canvas and all of the building blocks you need to combine in a way that's going to be very close to the way that you wish that you could work and the way you wish your work looked and felt every day. I mean, we struggle so much with just how different people work. I mean, like you look at just like education in general, like higher ed, this is how one specific group of people learned how to learn, you know, in that early 1900s. And then it's like, okay, everybody for the rest of eternity, you all have to learn this way. I mean, I feel it's much the same with, you know, collaboration It's like everyone has to be on the same page. It's like, that's pretty even. And then if you put everybody on the same page in a company that all thinks alike, then you have groupthink and that's not good either. Do you really actually need everybody on the same page? Because then how many cooks in the kitchen do you have? One thing that I find interesting about like Notion and where it is in the landscape with all these other productivity tools is that we're kind of betting on asynchronous communication where people get to do the work and respond to the questions and put in the time when they want to, as opposed to needing to be present to sort of answer all these pings and notifications that they're getting during the day. Uh, We really want to give people the ability to apportion a space for themselves to think and focus in a distraction-free environment and then be able to respond to all of their various inbox notifications in a different part of their lives or a different time period. Yeah, I mean, when I first read Remote, I thought a lot about, you know, how, what does remote work look like and, mm-hmm. and all that sort of stuff. And our team at, at Mission is almost almost all remote. And as soon as you add in one variable of someone in a wildly different time zone, everything changes. Yeah. And then I think that that's one of the interesting things for the vast majority of people in the world who work plus or minus three hours of time zones within each other. Yeah, I get up at 5 a.m. and my day ends at like 3, a, 3 p.m. or something yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah. And that that inherently is going to change and the world's going to become more connected, more close, and you're going to have people working all over the world. And if you don't have asynchronous ways of operating, it's going to be tough. I would also say that I think we're going to get smarter about and more aware of different working styles and that this is going to be a major theme in sort of the future of work conversation, that creatives work very different than a lot of technical minds and they need a different environment and they need a different sort of onboarding. Um, So how can we create those sorts of spaces and roles and workflows, cross-functional workflows as well, that get the most out of everybody's personalities and diverse working styles. It's something I think about a lot as a writer who works in environments every day with open floor plans and lots of notifications going off all day long. 
Oh, I know. We, yeah, we, I mean, you, you're sitting in the studio. You have to block time for deep work. Like you have to, if you're writing, I mean, you have to bury yourself in the story. And if you don't, it's going to be pretty much impossible to write it. Um, that is something that we saw with a lot of the popular content on the review is that the stories that provided any sort of advice around how to clear your mind or plan a schedule or make sure that your activities were aligned with your goals and intentions, all of that content performed remarkably well. And uh, my favorite one is from this woman, Fiji Simo, who runs as VP of product on sort of the, the media TV, new Facebook watch side of Facebook. And she was saying that every Monday morning she has a meeting with herself <laughs> where she really sits down with her schedule, makes sure she has enough time to accomplish everything she knows to need to get done that week, already anticipates tough conversations she knows she's going to have, like really tries to prepare herself in a very systematic. And uh, she says, I never miss that meeting. It's the one meeting I cannot cancel. Yeah. Don't schedule, don't schedule Ian before 10 a.m. on Monday. That's for sure. <laughs> I was thinking it's funny that like we fight the things that we hate. If you hate it, you should not fight it. Just don't do it. Like it's just one of those things. Like if you really hate Monday mornings, schedule your schedule so that you sleep in on Monday mornings and then you won't hate Monday mornings anymore. I, I completely mean, agree. It might mean that you hate Tuesday mornings, but probably not. Yeah. Probably won't. I mean, this is sort of dovetailing with an argument that I, I think is increasingly it's gaining some momentum that people are have constantly been like, oh, I have to uh, address my weaknesses. I have to really get yeah. stronger in the areas where I'm weak. And I've heard so many speakers lately saying like, no, just double down on where you're strong. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that there's some real merit to that. I mean, George R. R. Martin wrote Game of Thrones on a typewriter. Yeah. You know, and I, I just think that there's a lot of uh, a lot of ways to, to do things uh, the wrong way that feel right to you. And that's mm -hmm. probably a good thing. Let's get into some lightning round questions. Okay. These are fast and easy questions. Just like marketing automation with Pardot. Fast and easy. These questions will be nothing like the ones that you saw ahead of time. These are all ones that you have no idea what's coming. Oh, I'm excited. Are you ready? I think so. Number one, what app are you using on your phone that is the most fun? Oh, gosh. If I say Notion, that's not going to be good. That's cheating. <laughs> Uh, I am really obsessed with pocket casts. I listen to podcasts all day nice. long. If I am alone in any sort of capacity, I even, I swim every morning. I listen to podcasts while I swim and it's by far the most fun because it's the content that is the most fun for me. What technology allows you to swim with music? Actually a really cruddy MP3 player that I bought for about $23 off of Amazon. Okay, that's hilarious. <laughs> Um, I've heard a lot of people love Pocket Cast. I haven't, I'll, I'll have to check it out. What's your favorite one day getaway? Um, I love Monterey, love Carmel and Monterey. Uh, yeah. I do too. What ad campaign have you seen recently that you're the most envious of? Oh gosh, I don't know. It's not a recent campaign, but it is always sort of top of mind for me. The P&G campaign that ran in the 2012 London Olympics is by far the best advertising campaign I think that has ever existed. Oh, which one was that? Uh, it's the Thank You Mom campaign. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, where they had all of the children who are future Olympians 
And you show, they show just a montage of all these moms from around the world and just silently using P&G products, you know, detergent to wash their clothes, what have you. And then there's like this key moment where this little girl does a backflip on the balance beam and she's all of a sudden in the Olympics and you just start crying <laughs> immediately. Everybody I know starts crying. So whenever I'm asked about a favorite ad campaign, whether it's recent or not, I say that one. Favorite book or podcast that you've read or listened to recently? I love the rewatchables uh, from the Ringer so podcast. Good. I'm obsessed. They so talk good. about movies exactly the way I love to talk about movies. I feel like I know them. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I feel like I know Jason and Mallory from oh Binge God. Mode. It's just unbelievable. They just did Field of Dreams, and I was like crying during <laughs> the podcast. <laughs> um, Simmons is the best in the biz at bringing nostalgia, ridiculous insights that you always thought. That oh my you're gosh, like, yeah. Ah, yeah, it's so good. I mean, he's, yeah, there's a reason why he's been doing this for uh, as long as he has. It's just unbelievable stuff. He actually thinks like a movie watcher or a fan of sports in a way that like few people have ever done. Yeah. He was talking about one of his favorite sports writers and how when he first read this piece, he was like, here was this famous sports writer talking about this spider creating a spider web in the corner of the press box during this huge game. And he was <laughs> like, oh, my God, you can write about sports like this. Yeah. And that's something that inspires me, too, that like, oh, my God, you can write about technology companies like this. Yeah. I I mean, we we were huge fans of The Ringer. It's great stuff. Yeah. What question do you never get asked that you wish you got asked? I think I don't get asked about like uh, the team stuff about first round. And I think what made first round actually such an effective team is because everybody who worked there, at least for that point in time, and I think that that's still the case, like loved each other in like a serious knockdown ride or die loyalty sort of way. And Many of those people are still among my closest friends. Sean, who I worked with on the review, is one of my best friends. And I think that because we felt that way about each other, we all worked harder, longer hours. I'm not saying that that's, you know, the only way to work or not trying to glamorize that, but we just loved being with each other. So being able to create that team dynamic is really, I think, an underrated thing. And it's an underrated part of my experience that I never get asked about. What's your best advice for a first time writer? My best advice for a first time writer is to not just honestly not get discouraged and to become really graceful at taking feedback, like make that a skill. Don't just say like, oh, I'm going to be good at taking feedback, like really cultivate that as something that you are master at, um, where it's like even down to like what your hands are doing, what your face is doing, how you're inquisitive about it. And I think that that really starts with understanding that any feedback someone's giving you, even if it's not phrased kindly, is a gift. And you get to decide whether or not you feel that way about it. They don't get to decide it for you. Camille, that's all we got. That's it. That's it. I we hope did I did it. an okay job. You did an amazing job. Everybody, you can check out. It's Notion.so. Right? Yes, it is. Uh, check out Notion.so if you want to learn about the all-in-one workspace that they're building, which is really cool. And uh, where can people find you on the Twitters? I am at Camille Ricketts. Too easy. And we'll link that up in the show notes. And we'll link up the uh, first round content because it's amazing. Thanks so much for hanging out. Thank you so much. It's an honor. I really appreciate it. Yeah, talk soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of Marketing Trends. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot. World-class B2B marketers use Pardot to generate and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI at every stage of the sales cycle. 
Empower your marketing team to become revenue-generating superheroes and let Pardot's data analysis keep an eye on the bottom line. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast or click on the link in our show notes. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.